Hello and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and my guest today is the delightful Marie Rose Fanley. She is an author, a filmmaker, and a healer. She's been on an incredible journey that she's mentioned and gone into detail in her book, Talking Story, One Woman's Quest to Preserve Ancient, Spiritual, and Healing Traditions. Uh, This really has been a journey of passion and commitment, and I'm so delighted to welcome Marie Rose. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much for having me, Miriam. Oh my goodness, your story has been incredible. Yes. Tell me why you called it Talking Story. That has a big, deep meaning for you. Tell me about that. It, it does. Uh, I live in Hawaii now. I, I didn't when I first started this journey, but it's where I learned about the tradition of talking story. And what that means is when, when you're in Hawaii and people say, you know, come over and visit, they'll say, come over, let's talk story. And uh, beyond that invitation, or what comes with that invitation is this um, it request to make time, to make space, to share stories and to be present with each other. And usually it means there's no time constraint, there's no agenda. You just come over and talk story. Oh, my goodness. I feel so jealous. <laughs> That's something that we've lost in, in the West. Yes, we have. And I, I feel like it's part of my mission to kind of bring it back into our practices and uh, uh, and to share it with others, the, the delight of it. Because right now we all have kind of a perceived time paucity mm-hmm. and we don't think we have time to listen. We, we you know, someone says, oh, I need to talk to you about something. Just get to it. Just get mm-hmm. to it. Give me the bullet points. And then the other person doesn't feel heard, you know, or they don't feel seen. And I think we're all missing that. There's another dimension to talking story that you really go into in both the book and the film. And that is the continuous connection to um, generations, to the traditions, to the history. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, that's what really woke your passion for embarking on the journey that you did. Yes, you're absolutely right. I had a yearning to connect to something that was deep and that had ancient roots and kind of follow it back to see what remains of that, what remains of our collective stories in these various cultures and our spiritual traditions and healing practices. Um, So I set out to see if it even still existed or if it was something I was just going to be reading in a history book. Mm. Well, it's not just... any stories. You're particularly uh, focusing on stories of healers. You're you're looking at the healing traditions of many um, really endangered societies around the world. Yes, yes. I, I mean, it's it's hard for people to understand what I what I mean when I say there's a need for preservation or, or they're endangered. But in very real terms, um, many of the elders that I met on my journey are now no longer with us, mm-hmm. and it may be that what I captured of their story on videotape and in my book is all that's left. And so um, the good news is that I'm glad that I was honored to be able to do that. And then the sadness, of course, is a sense of loss. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that 
Just as when we remember our loved ones, they live on through the stories we remember about them. And so it's important that these healing traditions live on in the stories we know of the plants, of the people, and the places that are changing so quickly. Mm -hmm. Tell me, did you become a healer as a result of being the filmmaker, or were you a healer who was then motivated to go out and make the film? I definitely wasn't a declared healer when I went set out to make the film. I was much more comfortable uh, having been in the film business, having worked in technology, and um, and being a storyteller. So I was, I was much more comfortable being a documentarian than a healer. So I, I, I like to joke that I say my, my deal with God is, hey, I don't really want to be a healer. Uh, how about if I just make a documentary for you about it? You know, and uh, it's just interesting the universe said, okay, you know, <laughs> uh, wink, wink. Let's, let's let her go out there and, and tell herself that story and see what happens. So, um, but I, you know, I have healing heritage in my family. And yes, tell me about your auntie. Yeah, so my auntie, she's actually an auntie by marriage, but you know, in our culture, it doesn't really matter. You're, it's your auntie and you're related. And she's a, a, she was a medium, so she mm. did trans-channeling healing. Um, and then I have a great-grandfather who was a seer. And he was a blind man who could see your past and your future. Uh, and then my mother was also very intuitive. But she channeled kind of the healing heritage in a more acceptable way in terms of Western culture. Uh, so she went to Paris and was trained as a reg- registered nurse and practiced as a registered nurse here in America. How interesting. Mm, and my brother became a physician. He's a, he's a medical doctor. So the the roots run really, really deep. I guess so, yeah, yeah. And it's something that I, I think I thought I could escape because I, I did study medicine in school for a while, and then uh, I realized I had this greater passion for storytelling and filmmaking, and so I divert kind of went that way. <laughs> well, in the grand scheme of things, it could well be that... Um, what the universe felt was most important was the combination of these two talents. Indeed, indeed. It, it is true. I, um, after doing both the film and the book, I, I feel much more integrated now, um, and particularly with the also the work that I do in the world today. And it's a combination of these various aspects of me, and yet I feel it's all of me. So it's uh, it's quite a gift. I, and when I was younger, before I started the journey, I felt a lot more fragmented. Well, tell us what uh, you had in mind when you embarked on this heroine's journey. I had in mind to do a, what we call a straight documentary, which is kind of a joke, but I had the idea that I'd go out and try to find these healers, not necessarily famous healers, well-known healers, but just whoever this village or this community declared as their healer and their spiritual teacher. So um, my my only goal was to capture their stories, their practices, their knowledge and their wisdom. Um, and, you know, I had my list of questions and I was very determined to <laughs> learn everything I could about them. I'd be a good reporter. Um, and, that, of course, that's not, what, that's not what ended up happening, so... Now, you um, selected the countries on what basis? You, you went to Hawaii, you went to China, did a lot in Tibet and India. 
Well, I'd like to say that I actually chose those places, but um, I did start with a vision board. And when I realized, wow, these, these, as I started doing research and I realized, not only am I interested in these traditions, but they're, they're in danger of disappearing. And so I thought, oh my gosh, that means I need to hurry. You know, mm-hmm. I need to get going. I can't just dream about it. So I made a vision board and I just put some different countries and cultures on there, just kind of wishfully thinking as mm-hmm. we do. Um, and then as I did research, just kind of followed the doors that opened. Um, so there was a lot of synchronicity. Um, you know, I would call someone in this, uh, for example, our, our, uh, our contact in Hawaii, Nancy Kahalibai, uh, I called her, said, hey, do you know any healers I can meet with? And she said, do you have any sponsors? Um, I said, no. And she said, well, come over and you and your crew can stay with me and I'll introduce you to everyone. Hmm. So that's the first door I walked through. And then they just kept opening and opening. So um, uh, same thing with Peru. I started working with a company that was working with the plant medicine in the rainforest and had an opportunity to go there. So I put out my request to the universe and to God and um, kind of got a very responsive, clear path, meaning the next door, not the next 10 doors. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I have interviewed uh, a number of authors on New Consciousness Review who wrote books about particular healing traditions, and the um, whether it's Peru or Hawaii, um, Hank Wesselman's book, wonderful book, Bowl of Light, I think. Right, yes. Um, somebody like Kale Makua, who, who really was... A one of the last descendants of Kamehameha. Mm-hmm. Um, his traditions had always been oral and handed down to apprentices, to from from wisdom keeper to apprentice to the you know the yes. next yes. Um, uh, healer, um, and he actually uh, felt strongly the need to hand it over to someone who would bring it out in book form uh, and spread it out into the the kind of knowledge repository of the world. Yes. Because this knowledge was so important and it was in danger of being lost forever. Yes, yes. And I, I get that sense through much of the narrative in your book. Yes, I, I, I don't think I realized until later that I do believe these teachers and healers knew that their time was soon coming mm-hmm. to what the Hawaiians call change address, which is <laughs> pass to the other side. Um, and, and that is one of the, as I said, the sad stories about, um, about this journey is that many of the people I met have changed address. And I feel so blessed that they uh, shared some of their knowledge with me. Clearly it wasn't in its entirety, but we, we got a snippet, mm-hmm. you know, and I do think they were aware that because the apprentice tradition in their cultures was fading, uh, many young people don't want to or cannot afford to study with an elder for 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and they also want to experience modernity, some of the youth, which is fair. Mm-hmm. And so they would leave their communities and there would be no one within the culture to carry on the traditions. So I feel uh, my work has been just a little small part in helping to uh, 
take a little piece of that out into the world. Mm. Well, you get the same um, uh, fading of of the craft among artisans as well. I mean, a, a lot of the the crafts, uh, the, the handwork crafts, mm-hmm. have been disappearing because nobody wants to take the time to do such work by hand when yes. you can do it by machine, mm-hmm. even if the quality is different. Right. And here you have the competition of Western medicine, so it's very analogous. Yes. It, it, yeah. What do you think is special about the healing traditions that sets it apart from even alternative medicine or naturopathic medicine? I think that there's an open inclusion of the spirit world, the spiritual practice. For example, when people practice the Hawaiian massage lomi lomi, they say what's most important is not necessarily the movements, but the pule, the prayer. Mm-hmm. So every practitioner must learn the prayers in order to do their work according to Lomi Lomi masters. And so every culture that I visited, every tradition was infused with some form of prayer. And I think that um, that's something that we're missing. You know, the, the, And then prayer can be a declaration of love, a declaration of intention. A de- so it doesn't have to be to some disembodied God somewhere. Um, or a, a, an expression of gratitude, gratitude to the plant, gratitude for for healing us, um, for its offering, gratitude to the the practitioner, gratitude to the gift of being able to help others, and so that was something that was also very marked gratitude mm-hmm. for this honor. Now, as someone who um came out of the tradition, both of uh, what we would call psychic or intuitive. Um, clairvoyance or clairaudience uh, and the healing um, uh, aspect and I am coming from the the background of energy medicine Mm -hmm. and my husband is a hypnotherapist so all of these different um Influences on the human body mm-hmm. kind of swirl together. Yes. We have the placebo effect. Yes. We have um, actual hands on healing where you see physical changes mm-hmm. through the infusion of energy. Yes. Um, my husband sees physical changes in his clients simply through um, accepting internally that these changes can happen. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that is like yes. 80% of the way. Yes. The, it's like the old joke, how many alternative therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. <laughs> so um, where do these shamanic traditions that you visited sit on the spectrum between um, the, the natural healing using um, herbal medicine and energy healing and invoking the spirits. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess uh, I got to sample each of those types of healing. And 
I don't know that any one healer did all those things. So it was very distinct. They either worked with plants or they, uh, the definition of shaman is someone who actually travels to the other realms to bring back knowledge. Uh, and then the, the medium or the trans channel brings an energy into them mm -hmm. to inform us. Um, so I was able to, to witness those things and also to participate and to, to learn about each of those different practices. Um, Personally, how did you react to, did you react more strongly to one form than another? React strongly. Um, I guess I would say the the spiritual work, the the, the trans channeling was very powerful for me, and I wondered if it had to do with my family heritage. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes just like genetics, you might have a uh, what do you call it, uh, more of an affinity for a type of a type of medicine or a type of practice. And you said that because of your family history. You felt probably more attuned to the spiritual. Mm -hmm. And I, and yet, I don't even know if that's quite fair, because I had powerful effects from physical medicine of the the lomi lomi massage mm -hmm. um, and the herbal medicine. You know, something that was very practical. Mm -hmm. And so, I, I think that I, I want to say the most powerful experience I had was related to trans channeling. On this journey, well, do you think it's possible that different disorders or imbalances in the body react better to certain modalities than others? Absolutely, I, I believe so. Uh huh. Um, and, and so I just said that about the spiritual uh, trans channeling work, but then I realized uh, I did try ayahuasca, which is a plant medicine mm -hmm. that's psychoactive and allows one to break through the perceptions and uh, different realms. So that was very powerful as well. You know, it's interesting. There's a lot of research coming out now about the power of what they call entheogens, yes, like yes. ayahuasca and yes. peyote and LSD, mm -hmm. to push people through some kind of barrier yes. and allow them to open up their... Uh, intuitive antennae mm -hmm. in a way that uh, simple meditation um, either would take years of practice to do. Yes. Um, so it's kind of a shortcut, but exactly. it's a double-edged shortcut. It is. Any shortcut is double-edged, of course. Mm -hmm. It'll get you there faster, but are you ready to get there faster? Mm -hmm. So I, I, um, I agree with you that that's how I was taught that Basically, something like ayahuasca is a sacred rite. Um, it's a ritual. Uh, it's an it's a privilege, and it's to be taken seriously. And you have to be ready to face yourself. So, um, you know, if you get on the TGV, you you want to make sure you're ready to get to Paris that quickly. You know, and if uh, if you're not, then you might want to slow down and go the other way. Mm -hmm. And neither. You know, either way is fine. It's just whatever is right for you. Yes, we we tend to seek kind of instant gratification and shortcuts, and uh, I'm guilty. <laughs> um, I would love to to have such an experience, uh, but I know of people who have had similar experiences, and it really 
pushed them into a dark place. Yes, I, I you know, uh, when I do my book readings, people ask, ask me a lot about the ayahuasca experience. And I always say it's important to have a shaman that is of high integrity and high consciousness because they're responsible for tethering you while your soul travels mm-hmm. out in the ethers. And it's their job to keep tabs on you and to make sure when you're swimming too far away from the boat to call you back. And um, so I was blessed to have that experience where when it just got a little too much for my psyche to deal with, somehow the shaman knew to call me back. And he did that through singing. And it's a beautiful, beautiful song. Um, and I write about it in the book, but it, it's how it sounded was the uh, mix between singing and whistling. And maybe what I imagine angels would sound like if, if I could hear them. And so that was a gentle beckoning for me to come back home. But it was very powerful. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Tell us some of your experiences, the ones that really made an impression on you. Well, for sure the ayahuasca experience did. And I always say that, you know, I have no experience with drug taking or I wasn't a wild child in the in the, <laughs> that sense uh, and I've only been drunk twice in my life once when I was 13 and another time we don't need to discuss but um, <laughs> so for me to actually imbibe the um, a concoction to travel it was a little bit antithesis to what I believed or how I lived my life but I realized that I had a prejudice and so when I was invited to participate I felt it was the right thing to do to respect and honor a tradition and to understand it rather than judging it. Um, but it was a powerful experience. Uh, I, I, I participated twice. And each time I do think it saved me time. I really do think it allowed me to break through um, some mental constructs, uh, which are the things that limit us, and, and to see through and to live a different way. So my first ayahuasca journey, for example... Um, one of the messages I was given is if you meet the world with your sword drawn you will only draw to yourself conflict so it's good to have a sword put it in its sheath on your belt but don't meet the world with it you don't need to show everybody that you have one Um, but instead meet the world with your heart bared and that will uh, move you further along your journey and no harm will come to you. So even if someone kills you, having your heart bared, your soul will not be affected. Now that's an interesting perspective because we always focus on the safety of our physical body. And to live your life to protect your soul rather than your body is a pretty hefty shift. Yes, and I think um, that's why... When you travel in ayahuasca, you really want to have a good soul keeper who is tending to you, and and more important. And I mean, we were in a longhouse, you know, uh, in the rainforest, so it wasn't physically comfortable. And you vomit and purge in order for the medicine to work. So that's not fun either. Um, so it wasn't about physical comfort. It was about spiritual comfort, spiritual mm-hmm. safety. Mm-hmm. You know, you're entrusting your soul to someone else. Well, it's it's like the um, Native American ceremonies, like the, the sweat lodge. It's certainly not about comfort. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
But um, of the of the many ways that you have observed of reaching into the mystery, aside from ayahuasca, which is the sort of shortcut, were there any others that you felt really transported you strongly? Yes, um, when I was in the Himalayas, I was blessed to have a brief time with a, a Tibetan a Lama, High Lama, and uh, also a healer, so Dr. Amchi. Um, and he shared with us, uh, he took us into a sacred cave that had never been photographed before and told us that many of these caves in the area had been uh, within them they've been de- designated as sacred spots and within them were the keys to paradise so these secret texts that would become available by prophets tertans yes so these sacred caves uh, apparently there are a few of them in the region where we were visiting in Nepal just across from the border with Tibet that were infused with secret keys to paradise or hidden valleys. And these keys um, are to be translated and discovered at a time when the medicine that they contain is needed. So these keys are knowledge keys as opposed to physical keys? Well, that's what I asked him. (laughs) They're knowledge keys. Oh, and he Uh, answered, yes. 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 So they're, they're knowledge keys, but they are also texts and that only certain people could read and understand those texts. Um, they're called teratons, or treasure discoverers. Mm-hmm. And um, so, But these teratons will not become evident until the time is right for these secrets to be decoded. Mm-hmm. So um, you can imagine that it's really quite profound to... To understand, to be given first of all this this information that that this even exists. You know, I didn't know about these sacred caves. I didn't know about these secret teachings and secret paradises. You know, and it was like something that was out of a movie. So, um, very mystical, very magical, and uh, so to be with someone who is learned in that mysticism and that um, in those realms. As well as he's, he was also someone who also treated the physical body, so it was a, a nice, I think, a nice representation for me of someone who's integrated, mm-hmm. that they could talk about, talk about, and understand and practice these high spiritual arts at the same time. If you have a cough, he's got an herb to fix that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, master of all trades. Uh huh. <laughs> um. I remember reading years ago a book called um, Masters of the Far East. Mm-hmm. And at that time they were talking about these um, hidden valleys where the people in them live to incredibly um, uh, advanced ages and were able to bilocate and, mm-hmm. and had all kinds of mystical abilities. Um, so I wonder if that might be connected. Right, right. I mean, is it myth or is it something that really happens? And did you get the sense that the time is approaching when these mysteries will be revealed? I mean, time seems to be speeding up. Absolutely, yes. And um, the, the, the evolution of our societies, our technologies, 
um, our crises, our our crimes, our you know everything seems to be just getting bigger and faster. Yes. So that would be a really good time, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I guess we don't get to determine that. <laughs> it's kind of like a fine wine, you know. It takes its time, and then only the wine master knows when to open up to uncork that bottle. Um, so whenever, if I find a tartan, I'll let you know. <laughs> I see him walking down the street and say, "Hey, wisdom, wisdom, you know, wisdom discoverer, treasure discoverer, which way to paradise?" <laughs> yeah. It's a, it would, if not, if we're not in it, we're definitely approaching those times because everything. Uh, it, I mean, of course, humanity has had <clears throat> its share of um, dark times and light times, and uh, we may just be in another grand cycle. Um, but what I love most is that these times were planned for by the ancients and the ancient wisdom. Certainly, if you read um, the Hopi prophecies or um, the the. Kogi uh, declarations, you know, from from uh, South America. Yes. Um, yeah, many many of uh, the ancient traditions are, are talking about this time, you know, the yes. end times. Yes, yes, and I think you know, I I don't like to be someone who talks about the sky falling, but definitely, and we're going through a time where we have a lot of opportunity, <laughs> opportunity to shed our egos, to let go of the ways that haven't been serving us as um, as guests on this planet and as a collective, and, and see if we can really commit to some change now. And we've been given these tools through the ages. Uh, are we going to become master practitioners? You know, that's the question, because that's what's going to be required. What were the greatest lessons that you personally learned through this voyage? I learned a lot about commitment. Um, I call it the C word. Uh, everybody that I met was was wholly committed to um, living a life as part of a community, so having the same responsibilities as, as everyone else, but then having the added burden of being responsible for the well-being of their community. So that takes a huge amount of commitment. Um, one of the, the dummies, which is what the shamans are called in Nepal, in, in the Humla region of Nepal that I visited, you know, he said, sometimes my family gets really upset because I have to leave and I'm supposed to help them with the crops and I have to go help somebody else. And he says, you know, they have to accept that this is part of my calling. Um, but it doesn't, it's not always, you know, it's not always convenient and it does cause stress and struggle sometimes for my family. So I loved his honesty of, of you know, having to deal with the human realm while having these spiritual gifts. Were they paid for their services? You know, in one, there was always some form of reciprocity. So uh, whether you're given uh, a chicken or a meal um, or a gift and or service, so if they needed something that you could do. And so that was a form of reciprocity that, that I witnessed. And, um, and I know a lot of healers in, in the West have quite a quandary about, do I charge, don't I charge, is it okay to charge for spiritual work, um, should it be donation-based only? Mm-hmm. But again, that's out of context, you know. And I mean, when I was a practitioner, pe- people who may not have had a lot of currency cash, they would trade for meals or haircuts or whatever they had to offer, that would be a value to me. 
um, or that would you know bring something some form of reciprocity. Um, but mostly in the West, our form of reciprocity exchanges with currency, with money. So uh, it causes people to just have endless debate about it. Um, but I mean, one of the things I talk about, though, if you're given a, a beautiful singing voice and you sell a record, is that not God's gift as well? So should you not charge for that? You know, if you are an amazing painter or you have the gift of gab, you know, why is it okay to receive reciprocity for that? Mm-hmm. So, um, but I think people have a, this kind of funny dance with what is spiritual or what is uh, God's work versus versus human work or mm-hmm. work of the mundane. So um, you used the term when I was a healer in the past tense. Are you no longer a healer? Well, you know, it's funny because I kind of never really called myself a healer. Um, I used to say that healing comes through me. It's something that happens. Um, but it doesn't really define who I am. And I wanted to be mindful of that. And because my teachers are very strict with me about that, you know, that this this gift of healing or this gift of uh, seeing or any of that, um, they're just cities, right, empowerments that we are given along the way as we grow our consciousness. Don't get caught up in, in the magic of the empowerments you're given. Just keep going. So maybe one day you're doing healing work or allowing healing to move through you in one form, and another day you're cleaning toilets. And if you're cleaning toilets with your arms and your hands that are connected to your heart, it's the same work as healing work. So they were very clear about kind of breaking down those barriers in my own mental constructs. I think they saved me lifetimes. Um, Yeah. And so now I think, as I'm looking back on it now, I did healing work uh, one-to-one, working with clients. And then I wanted to shift that work uh, from the one-to-one to to the one-to-many. So working through that, uh, returning to my work in media and understanding the power of media to inspire, to transform, uh, and to also do harm. And so I wanted to get back to something that I felt um, may be able to reach more people um, more efficiently. And so now I've, I've kind of moved my work um, you know, from the one to many through media, and I also um, am the chief operating officer of a, a visual media company. Uh-huh. So through that business and um, how to practice what I've been taught in all walks of life. Uh, so I guess that's why I say when I was a healer. But I do believe um, being someone who transports healing transmissions through her work is probably what I'm really doing <laughs> in whatever form that is. <laughs> what is the difference um, in the uh, impact, do you believe, between your book and your film? Mm-hmm. So the, the film came out first. We, I finished that first. And um, I was very surprised at my first screening. It was in Byron Bay, Australia. And that it, it was a full house. And afterwards, so many people were emotional. Uh, some of them couldn't speak. And, um, and I was a little bit taken aback because it was so powerful. And that's when I realized, oh, wow, the intention to capture the healing transmissions in this form actually worked and so that was wonderful to see um and i think that the film gives people 
uh, a sense of the story, a sense of place, a visual context for the journey, uh, and some insight into my personal journey. But the book is a lot more personal. And I wrote that uh, after my film screenings, and people would ask me very personal questions, and they wanted to know more about the inner landscape. Mm -hmm. So I I say that that the film uh, shows you more of the external landscape and gives you a little peek into the internal landscape, but the book really goes in there. And um, I, I, I just put my heart on the page, which was a a challenge for sure. Mm. The book is called Talking Story. Do you have a website for it? I do. Talkingstorybook.com. And from there, uh, it's one-stop shopping. You can find out about the book. You can learn about my events. Um, You can join me on social media. I have my contacts there. Um, And then also options of where you can find the book and the DVD. I'm astonished you got that URL, Talking Storybook. I am too, actually. (laughs) I guess it was meant to be. I guess it was meant to be. Right. So do you have a message you'd like to leave with our listeners and viewers? I would say that um, apparently your listeners and viewers are very interested in growing their consciousness and and on, on being on this human journey, I'm not even going to say spiritual journey, but the next level of the human journey. Um, And I want to say, remember the C word, be committed. Be committed first before you take those steps because the commitment will inform your choices. So, for example, if I at least commit to saying I know I want Italian food for dinner, I'm going to be shown a different menu then if I say, I don't know if I want French, I don't know if I want Italian, or if I want French wine. So then all of a sudden it seems like the world is not showing you your path. So I, th- I say, you know, be committed to something. It doesn't have to be a grand commitment. It doesn't have to be um, pinpointed to the very last detail. It's just the opposite. But let's say I want to learn how to train my mind. I want to learn to be a more peaceful person. I want to learn how to tap dance. I want to learn how to fly a plane. All those things require the commitment to that before you go out and try to make some choices. Well, I guess that's really um, invoking the power of the law of attraction. Until you have a really clear picture in your mind of where you want to go, um, you will wander all over the map until yeah. until you really clarify it and then you'll know where to go. So Yeah, and I, I think to clarify, it's not that let's say I want to go to Paris. I don't need to decide everywhere I want to visit in Paris before I commit to going to Paris. I don't have to know every street corner. I don't have to memorize the map. But I do kind of need to know that I want to get to Paris. <laughs> and that's the start, right? And then from there, you move. Right. Oh, my goodness. We could talk all day. We've been speaking with Rose, Marie-Rose Fonley. Um, her book, Talking Story, One Woman's Quest to Preserve Ancient, Spiritual, and Healing Traditions. Marie-Rose, thank you so much for being with us Thank today. you so much for having me, Miriam. It was a pleasure. If you haven't done so, I invite you to visit New Consciousness Review, our online magazine and website at ncreview.com. 
You'll find reviews and award-winning interviews about leading-edge books and films from the world of science and consciousness, alternative health and healing, social and environmental activism, interdimensional communication, and the spirituality of oneness. As the conscious awakening gathers speed, ncreview.com has become a global hub for transformational media to feed your inner cosmic explorer. As Albert Einstein said, I believe in intuition and inspiration. Imagination is more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited, whereas imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress, giving birth to evolution. So join us at ncreview.com, your partner in conscious evolution. And here is a special invitation to the avid readers among you. If you enjoy sharing your opinions and write well, please consider joining the NCR team of book reviewers. It's a real service to the community and a great way to build your library with leading-edge books, often before they're even published. If you are interested, contact me at reviews at ncreview.com or you can use the contact form on our website. Well, that is our show for this week. I hope you'll join us next week when my guest will be Colleen Morrow talking about spiritual telepathy. Until then, I invite you to browse our website and leaf through our contact content Packed multimedia magazine and podcast archive. If you want to keep up with the latest reviews on the site, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ncreview or twitter.com slash ncreview. Thank you again for joining us today. Until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Be good to yourself, do good in the world. And let that light of yours shine.